0: I also want to welcome you to week four of a five week campaign that we have uh, called Come and See. And what have we been talking about? We've been talking together about transforming our campus into a place that's even more open to the community, into a place that oozes hospitality, into a place that creates and cultivates, encourages spiritual small talk. What's our mission as a church? Let me remind you, we talked about this last week, our mission is to create a positive faith environment where non-churchgoers are encouraged to become fully developing followers of Jesus. In other words, we want people to be able to come and see the difference that Jesus Christ can make in their life. How many of you want that? If you remember week one, We looked at what a come-and-see environment looks like. We said, what are we aiming for? And I began to describe the come-and-see environment. It means that this is a place that you can come and think. It's a place that you can come and process with friends. It's a place that you can come and experience. Second week, we talked about what gives birth to a vision. And what did we say ultimately? We said ultimately, need should give birth to a vision. And everybody needs the gospel. Is that right? Everybody needs the gospel. Then week three, last week, we talked about what a positive faith environment looks like and how a positive faith environment is very tied to who we are as a church and who Jesus says we are to be. If you remember, we talked about the Sinai assembly and how Peter picks up on that motif and he says that's what the church is to be. And if you remember, we said our job is a lot like a farmer. You're all farmers. Turn to somebody and say, that's right, you're a farmer. Ready, set, go. You're a farmer, yee-haw. Tell you what, our job is to cultivate an environment so that when God's word, his seed is planted, there's optimal opportunity for growth. Now, who causes the growth? God causes the growth. Let me just tell you something. I don't make anybody come to know Jesus. I don't have that power. All I speak are words and I communicate God's words, but He's the one that gives those words power. I've got no power. But He does something in the heart of a person as the seed of His word is planted and it causes a person to become born again. But you got to understand, I don't convict anybody of sin, (laughs) that's not my job. My job is to sow the seed of the word of God. It's God's job to convict people of who they are and how they need him. And it's God's job to cause the growth. Sound good? But in that sense, you guys got to understand, I've got to understand, we are in a commission with God. He favors you enough to include you in the process. Somebody say amen. Amen. Now, today I want to talk to you about being a channel of his power, because that's really what this passage is all about. There's a little boy who is chosen to be God's channel, who is chosen to channel God's power in a miraculous way. Now, we know this little boy is poor because the scripture says he has barley loaves. Barley was the bread of the poor. In fact, it had been that way for centuries, all the way into the Renaissance. Barley is the bread of the who? Poor. So who's this little kid? He's just a little kid from a poor family. And from a human perspective, he's not very significant. In fact, this little boy is what maybe many of you feel you are today. You're not sure you're very significant. You're not sure that your life is going to make a difference. But what are we going to learn from the story here on this commitment Sunday that we've been leading toward? What we're gonna learn from the story is that in the hands of Jesus Christ, the insignificant becomes significant. In the hands of Jesus Christ, the insufficient becomes sufficient. In the hands of Jesus Christ, loaves become a feast. Come on, are you with me? And an entire city gets fed. It reminds me of what we really are trying to do in this campaign. And we've asked you today to bring loaves and fishes and just what God's given you. It could, maybe it's a couple sardines like in this story and maybe it's just a little biscuit like in this story, but that's okay because we're giving it to a God who can do all things. Today, I want to talk to you about two things really. We're going to talk about the sufficiency of his power to do it and how we can be channels of that power. Now, this is an amazing thing because there's another place in the Scripture that was just read to you where Jesus puts it this way. He says, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a what? Mustard seed. seed. It doesn't even have to be that big. He says, but if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, here's the question. How can Jesus talk like that? What makes him say such bold things? It's almost as though Jesus is saying that you and I can do more possibly through him than we could ever conceive. That he will enable you to be able to deal with obstacles that are far beyond your ability. You remember Philip, by the way? Philip, he's the one that came and told Nathaniel in the first week. He's the one that said, Nathanael, come and see. Come and see this Jesus. And now Philip's in this story now. Because Jesus is coming to him and saying, how are we going to feed all these people? And guys, I just got to say to you, Jesus is the master teacher. How many know that's true? Because here's what he does. Look at verse 6. It says, he asked him, what are we going to do? But look, he already had in mind what he was going to do. Now, here's the question. Why does Jesus take his disciples through all this? He ends up getting a little boy, and he removes lunch from the little boy's mouth. It actually probably felt pretty unfair. What kind of man would take lunch from a kid? And he gets his disciples all nervous, and he gets his disciples all upset. They're scrambling around. Jesus said to find food. All the while, it says he knew what he was going to do. So why does Jesus put people through this process? I mean, if Jesus knew that he could just snap his fingers and there would be food for everybody, why not just snap your fingers? Instead, he stresses everybody out. Everybody's gotta go to work. Everybody's gotta you know, look for food and try to contribute here. Listen to me, Jesus is the master teacher. Because I'm gonna say this to you. Write this down. God loves me enough and he loves you enough to let you participate in his miracles. Write that down. God loves me enough and he loves you enough to let us participate in his miracles. Now, speaking of miracles, it's worth noting that this miracle is recorded by all four gospel writers. It's in the book of Matthew, it's in the book of Luke, it's in the book of John, you know, it's in the book of Mark. All the Gospels record this one. It's the only miracle. Here's the question. Why? Why is this miracle recorded in all four Gospels and none other are? Well, let me ask you, how many people were in the crowd? You remember? You're saying 5,000. No, there weren't. There were 5,000 men. (laughs) They only took a census of the men. So you understand, this crowd could have been three times as big, a probable guess would have been, this is more like 15,000. So when anybody says the miracle when Jesus fed the 5,000, go, oh no, you got that wrong, Jesus fed the 15,000. Now here's one of the reasons I think that, that this is included, this miracle, in every Gospel. Because this miracle is actually proof of the credibility of the New Testament. It's the credibility of the Gospel itself. You say, well, why? How is that? Well, whenever a historian's going to tell you, a scholar's going to tell you, what you have to know is whenever you're studying an ancient historical document, you're looking for something that is called internal evidence and external evidence because the historians are saying, should we take this seriously? What do you think? Is this writing something that we should take seriously? Now, I'm going to tell you this. The gospel documents were being circulated 30 years after this event happened. Now... If a miracle, it was being circulated, all the Gospels, in all the Gospels, all around within 30 years. My goodness, I have been at North Point over 20 years. 30 years is not that long. I'm going to tell you this. If 30 years later, there was documents being circulated saying this miracle had happened in this small place that affected 15,000 people, I'm going to tell you, if it didn't happen, there's no way those documents ever would have gotten off the ground. Not with 15,000 people. So a historian looks at that and says, that's fascinating. It's the most public of all of his miracles. I mean, Paul tells us that 500 people once saw the resurrected Christ after death. That's a very well-attested miracle. But I'm talking about 15,000. Why? Well, I think because he's saying, dude, it happened. It really happened. That's why nobody's saying it didn't. Number two... Why is this recorded in all the Gospels, this miracle? I think it's because this is Jesus' way of announcing who he really was. Because do you remember when God fed the children of Israel in the desert? What did he feed them? Bread. Manna. Manna. In fact, notice it says here, I will rain down bread from heaven for you in the desert, in the dead place, in the place where nothing will grow. In fact, did you know that the prophets continually said that when the Messiah comes, the Messiah will be the one who when he comes, he will feed us the bread from heaven like Moses did at Sinai. In fact, you may, may not study the Apocrypha, but I love the Apocrypha. I've read all of the, the extra-Jewish writings, especially in the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There were 400 years of silence. But there were Jewish people still writing. This is from Second Baruch, for example. It says here, in those days, the Jewish people thought that the Messiah will appear and feed them with bread from on high. So, this is the Jewish mind. So now you have to understand, here comes Jesus Christ, he brings people on purpose into the wilderness and he decides to feed them with bread. Come on, what is he saying? He's serving notice. He's saying, do you people see who I am? Do you see what I can do? He's saying, I'm the guy who brings life out of nothing. He's the miracle worker, and I think that's one of the reasons it's recorded in all four Gospels. But let me tell you a final reason, because we're talking about the sufficiency of his power to do what he wants to do. I think Jesus is saying to you and me today as we read the story that he is always willing to do more than we would expect. I mean, like a river sometimes bursts its banks and sometimes floods everything, Jesus, bursts the level of your expectations... Do you remember, for example, let's go back to the Old Testament again. When the people of Israel got, what was the word? They got manna, bread. When they got that, remember what God said. He said, if you try to gather any more, any leftovers, it's going to spoil. You can't have any more. You can only have enough for one day. So you only got just enough. Yet, what you see here is that Jesus goes out of his way to show us that when God does something big now bread from heaven it's not just per day it's super abounding everybody gets to stuff themselves now you say why do you say that guys listen to me what do you think christianity really is you ever think about that what do people think christianity is i'll tell you what a lot of people think they think well i'm not going to get to have much fun i can't do this and i can't do that and i have to stay in line but that's the price you pay if you want to go to heaven here's my question is that really what christianity is i don't think so my lord jesus the christ one day he created the best wine that anyone had ever tasted it was his first miracle and in this miracle he's saying i'm gonna stuff you and there's gonna be so much left over what kind of a god is this that's saying, I'm not just going to give you what you need. I'm going to bless you. Let me ask you this. I thought about this this week, how amazing God is. What kind of a God would create over 2,000 species of beetles? Did you know that there's over 2,000 species of beetles? Now, I'm going to ask you, what kind of a God would choose to do that? Who would even think of that? I mean, why not like 200? Why not 100? Only a God who loves life for itself, only a God who's an artist, only a God who revels in vitality and beauty, 2,000 for the fun of it. Oh man, when Paul writes about him, he says his power is incomparable and it's incomparable great power for us who believe. And as you read, as you see this scripture, I want for you to notice that Paul starts heaping up adjectives. In fact, he says this power is incomparably great. What kind of a God has incomparably great? In the Greek, these adjectives, it means like super abounding. In fact, you want to know what the words are in the Greek for incomparably great? We can't even translate it right. Here are the exact words. Go ahead and put them up on the screen. Hyperbolo megathos dunamis. That's what he's saying. He's saying God's power is hyperbolo megathos dunamis. That's, in English, incomparable power. No, I'm telling you, it's hyperbolo megathos dunamis. I mean, that is like a manly chunk-sized word. Say it with me. Hyperbolo megathos dunamis. I mean, it sounds like a transformer, doesn't it? And God is saying, God is saying, I have so much power. For you to know my power is to know the hyperbolistic, megatonic dynamite of God. That's what Paul is saying here. It's an amazing thing. Now, when you think about God, think about the universe for a minute with me. I was meditating on this this week, guys. I couldn't wait to share this with you. I got goosebumps right now. I'm telling you, when you begin to think about God, As an example, did you know that a nuclear warhead is only a thousandth of the power of a hurricane? And yet my Bible says that God sits enthroned above the hurricane. A hurricane is just a billionth of the power of an eruption on the surface of our sun. Did you know that? A billionth. Which, by the way, is just a little star. The Bible says God scatters stars like sand. Then of course, our sun. Our sun is such a small sun. It's nothing compared to a supernova. In fact, it's a millionth of the power of a supernova. Now, did you know a supernova is just one of infinite number of points of power in the universe? Guys, what is the power of God, really? Is it a million universes? No. In fact, as I try and describe it to you, I'm just saying to you, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface, but Paul comes and he says, his incomparably great power is for who? For us who believe. Why do you think we want to get non-believers on this campus? Why do you think we want people to come into a community? Because he's saying, look, God is beyond, beyond. He is greater than great. That is the sufficiency of his power. Jesus says, listen to me. It doesn't matter how insignificant you think you are. He'll take your barley loaves and he'll do something unbelievable. God says, you put whatever you have into my hands and my power is going to come through you like a freight train. That's what God says. Now, by the way, that's what we've been leading to in this series when we've been talking about these commitment cards. That's why I'm saying it doesn't even matter the amount that you give because I'm just believing that without debt, our church is just going to raise the money and we're just going to continue to do what we do in spreading the gospel. But we're just offering, you understand, barley loaves and fish, and that's good, and then we're going to watch God do his thing super abundantly. Guys, think about Jesus. My goodness, the people hanging out with Jesus, they said things like, who who is this guy that even the waves and the wind obey him? I mean, that is the sufficiency of his power. So, how can you and I be channels of that power like this little boy? You ready? Everybody ready? Man, I'm preaching better than you're giving me right now. All right, good. Just like this little boy. Here we go. Because his incomparable great power is for us who believe, he says. Because I'm just going to tell you, some of you, you've come in here today and your ambition is way too small. I'm just saying it. Some of you have come in here today and your ambition is too small. What do you do? You come to church. You want a little inspiration. You want to get a little extra boost for the week. And I'm saying, oh, my friends, God wants so much more for you than that. Jesus wants to give you so much more than that. And I think about what we're trying to do as a church to change our community and what God could do if we all offer like the boy. I mean, Jesus, look, God looks, he says, Jesus says, hey guys, what are you gonna do? Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now remember, Jesus already knew what he was gonna do. So Philip is looking around, remember Philip again? Come and see, come and see. Philip's looking around, and he goes, man, eight months' wages wouldn't buy enough food for each person to even have a bite. I don't know what we're gonna do. And then somebody speaks up, Andrew, and he says, well, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, five biscuits and two sardines is what he's got. But he's like, I don't know how that's gonna help. How far is that gonna go, this little offering we're gonna give? And you see what Jesus is doing? He has them desperate. He lets them think that they're going into despair. Isn't God good? He lets them think. He leads them into despair. He brings them to the point, and it leads us to this point. You've got to write this down. If you're going to be a channel for his power, here's the first thing you've got to understand. You cannot be a channel of his power until you see your own powerlessness. Write that down. You cannot be a channel of God's power until you see your own powerlessness. Don't you see that Jesus wants to get you to the place where you will admit that you need him? And then you'll have no choice but to turn over what little bit you have. Why? Because until you see your powerlessness, you can't tap into any other power. And God says, I want you to tap into my power. Jesus says, I want you to acknowledge what little you have, and I'm going to take you to see what little you have. And then, you know what Jesus says? He's so good. He says, I want you to see what little you have, and then I'm going to take even that from you. Because that's exactly what he does to the little boy. He sees what little he has, and then he takes that little bit. Even if it's so little, to be a channel of his power, you've got to get to that place where you're saying, God, all that I'd have is only through you. It's all yours. How else do you be a channel for his power? Write this down. Number two. Number two. You have to put everything you have in his hands. You realize how little it is, but you put it in his hands. Now, guys, verse 11 is the scariest part of this whole passage. You know why? Because it says this. Notice, it, notice the phrase. It says, then Jesus took it. He took the loaves. Again, here's this little kid out in the middle of the desert. 15,000 people are famished. At least this little kid had lunch. Jesus took it. He took his lunch. In other words, he had to lose control over that little bit, and so do I. And so do you. My question is, are you willing to do that? Am I willing to do that? Because you've gotta see that it's only because he gave it up that he ended up eating far more than he ever could have imagined. Because he puts them into Jesus' hands. Because he said they're gone. Now he had an incredible feast. And he ate much more food than actually existed. And not only was he filled, but everybody around him was filled. Now that's why, guys, we've gotta be givers. That's why we give to God what we've got because that's how God, he loves you enough to let you participate in his work. In fact, would you in your notes grab this little bulletin insert that I created for you or this little uh, notes insert. It's uh, top 10 reasons to be generous because I just want to walk through some of these with you. When we're like this little kid with our little lunch, what does God say? He says, number one, We should be generous because generosity honors God. He says, others are gonna praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. I want you to notice something. There is an obedience that is supposed to accompany a confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it honors God. For your generosity is sharing with them and with everyone else. Number two, generosity will actually draw me closer to God. Proverbs 14.23 says the purpose of tithing is to teach you to always put God second. Oh, wait. Is that what that says? Oh, no, we're supposed to put God what? First. There we go. (laughs) Something else. You know, he says generosity will make you closer to God. Matthew 6.21, he says, you know, Wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to be. God says, you want, to know, you want me to know why I want you to give your treasure? Because I want your heart. And until you start giving me your money, you're not going to give me your heart. You say, you, you want to know what moves you? You want to know what has your heart? Look at your checkbook. Look at your bank statement. Nobody uses checks anymore, but look at, your, look, at your, you know, look at your debit card. Two things. Look at your debit card statement and look at your calendar, and then you'll see what God you serve. And so God says, man, I want your heart. Uh, Number three, generosity makes me more like Jesus. Uh, Number four, generosity is a cure for materialism. Number five, generosity demonstrates my faith. Number six, generosity reveals my character. Number seven, generosity brings God's blessing. Number eight, generosity increases my happiness. You get the idea. It brings God's protection. It's going to be rewarded in heaven. God says, boy, there are so many good reasons to be generous. So guys, don't you see? What does it really mean to put what I have in Jesus' hands? Truly, concretely, three things, ready? Three things. Write this one down. You've gotta be obedient with the knowledge of his power. You've gotta be obedient with the knowledge of his power. Remember, we first got, had to talk about the sufficiency of his power. You know the place where God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, actually it was Abram and Sarai. He said, Abram, Sarai, I want you to plan to have a child. Now, Abraham was over 100 years old and Sarah was 90 years old. God comes and says, I want you to have kids. How many of you would go for that plan? (laughs) So God comes to a 100-year-old and a 90-year-old and says, you know, you're going to have a child. I want you to plan your life around that. Look what the Bible says. It says that Abraham was fully persuaded let's go to that scripture for everybody he was let's read it together he was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised are you fully persuaded that God has the power to accomplish what he says he wants to accomplish Abraham looked at God and he said a hundred I'm a hundred years old My wife's 90 years old, but he looked at God and he said, you know, this is the God who scatters stars. And so he was obedient and he did what God said. And I'm telling you, unless you obey God on the basis of who you know him to be, unless you put yourself in his hands, oh man, you'll never be an instrument of his power. Now here's the second thing, write this down. You've got to realize that God's power is for you. It's for you. Paul says, if God is for us, who could be against us? Do you remember when, when, you remember the story when Jesus, oh, I love it that you guys are planning on going to Israel uh, with us this year, and, and I hope you get signed up and registered, because I went to this place where Jesus stood before Pilate and stood before the high priest Caiaphas, and it was so something, everybody's about to pounce on him, And Jesus stood before them courageously, but where did he get such courage? You know why? He looked at Pilate and what did he say? Look at this scripture. It's a powerful thing. Take a look at it. It's so fascinating. There you go. He says this, he says says to Pilate, you would have no power over me unless it were given to you from above. How could Jesus be so courageous facing his death? Because he says, Pilate, Any power you have is just coming from my father anyway. So it's not your hands that I'm in. It's his hands that I'm in. And what you have to realize is that, that power of God, he says that incomparable power, it's for you. But some of you, you're not going to experience it until you trust him. So I'm asking you, I'm asking you today to give him your loaves. And let's see that God brings back a feast. Let's do that together. Does that sound good? Let's pray. Father, I pray with every person, no matter where they are, uh, watching online, um, here in this room, in other places, and I ask in Jesus' name you'd meet them where they are and that you would bless them and that you would fill them with your encouragement, your strength. Lord, we together as a church, we've talked about what we want to do in the vision. We just want to reach more and more people and be in an environment where, a positive environment where people can grow as you build something within them. Lord, as we make commitments today, would you take those commitments and just expand them super abundantly? We pray that it would be supernatural. We pray there'd be leftovers, Lord. We're not asking for one day's manna. We're asking for baskets left over. You're a God that doesn't just feed us for one day anymore. But you give us super abundantly. And so we just ask you, would you would you work in our hearts and in our lives as we commit to you in faith? And we trust you. And we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Everyone said,